Amen. If you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, we're going to finish that. Beginning in about verse 8. Last week uh, we talked about Joseph and his uh, crazy story. And we had drawings for the kids. I told Chris, I, I, I don't know why he told us, I said, hey, we need a picture. Chris Larson draws pictures for the kids to kind of color to match what we're talking about. He drew this picture of Joseph in a hole. And I think I told him Joseph in a well, but he wasn't in a well. He's in a hole or a pit. And so he looked at the picture and read the text I was preaching. He's like, I've been drawing heresy. I said, no, let's just imagine that it rained or something that day. And so uh, my sons brought the picture and said, Dad, look. And I said, hey, that's an awesome picture. They're like, here we go. Let's see how all these teachers did. So who is that? He's like, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Can't you see his lightsabers, you know? I'm like, oh man, and so he's like, but I drew two. I was like, okay. And he goes, who's that? And he puts up this picture of a guy that looks like it was the drawing, but he's all covered in black, and that was Darth Vader. So, you know, we asked him later, like, who was it really? He's like, oh, it's Joseph. And I was like, okay. So there was some truth that was shared there. But we, uh, we went over Joseph. The story of Joseph is an amazingly terrible, beautiful story, all at the same time. And in the, in the story, as you read the last kind of 15 chapters of Genesis, you see that God meant for Joseph to experience all these things. He meant for his brothers to betray Joseph. He meant for him to be thrown in this pit. He meant for him to be sold to the Arabs. He meant for him to be put into um, Potiphar's house and to be falsely accused. And he meant for him to go to prison. And he meant for him to interpret these dreams. And he meant for him to be successful and be blessed by God to be really the Lord of the, this Egyptian nation, which is at the time the biggest nation in the world. And so it seems uh, we kind of want to speak our own opinion, but that's the opinion of Joseph that God meant for him to experience those things. The guy who's suffering says, God meant me to experience those things. And so ultimately what happens, it seems strange and kind of uncomfortable, but God leads the people he loves into what is slavery in the early chapters of Exodus. And it seems fair and wrong maybe for God to allow us to fall into sin or to be hurt. But I think sometimes if we could just understand that God's goal with, with you and I is to conform us to the image of His Son who suffered terribly, that maybe perhaps we can understand a little bit of why, why we have to experience some of the dirt that we walk through in this life. The Bible talks about the discipline of the Lord. That's a very interesting word. Um, our understanding of the word seems to have evolved a little bit or maybe just mutated into a really narrow definition of punishment. And the English word for uh, discipline focuses more on learning that, that shapes an individual, shapes their character, and enforces their behavior. And in fact, it's from the, uh, the Latin word that means instruction or training. And so to discipline someone isn't to punish them, although that's a meaning, because that's how parents kind of like, I discipline my children, and that is a meaning that's attached to it. But I think more accurately, or maybe more commonly, it means to take that which is chaotic and maybe a little disorganized or, or misdirected and put it into clear and good order and give it direction. So that it functions in the way that it was designed to. 
So discipline, maybe in spite of popular misconceptions, not inherently like really stern or harsh or mean or something like that, but that's kind of how we always feel. And I think it maybe makes sense why the Bible translators use the word disciple, that root word, to talk about someone who follows Jesus. Because it's maybe painful sometimes. And following like Joseph did, where we follow him maybe right into Egypt, it hurts. But following God and experiences discipline is the means by which he shapes us and he perfects us and he knocks off those things. And I think we all have had probably experiences where we go, oh, that really stunk, but man, I learned so much. I'm a different person because of this. And a lot of us, although some of us would say, I don't ever want to go through that again, some of us say, well, if I hadn't gone through that, if I hadn't experienced that, I wouldn't be like this. It's understandable that people fear the discipline of God, but what you should really fear is the wrath of God. Because they're very different and they're not the same. Because the Bible says that God disciplines those that He loves and He pours out wrath on His enemies. And the Exodus story is a picture of this incredibly. Where you have a clear distinction between two things, two people. You have a people that God loves. A people that God redeems, a people that God saves, and maybe we should say a people that God allows to be disciplined. And then a very different people, led by a very different king, who he pours out his wrath on. I mean, he just pours it out. Now, his people come out of this kingdom of a tyrant. And he makes them citizens of a new kingdom. And he does this. He crushes this king. Not so that we can just be free in our own little world, but so that we can be servants to him. And we still go, but why do they have to like go into slavery and stuff? And I think sometimes maybe some of the really cruddy dirt parts of the discipline of the Lord, if you want to call it that, which I think is a good thing to call it. Sometimes we go, well, if I could know the... Uh, the things that I'm being disciplined for. If I could see the end result, then I might be able to accept it more. But I don't know if that's really the case. Like when I'm disciplining my child in punishment, or I'm trying to help them, and I allow them maybe to go through something difficult, knowing I could stop them so that they learn. Like when Landon like wanted to touch the flame, go ahead and touch it, son. You know, when he gets burned... That's a pretty good teacher, really good teacher. And I think some of us think, well, if I could just see what the end result was, well, Landon wouldn't. Well, son, you're going to get burned, and here's why. And I don't think that he would comprehend that. And we're talking about God and us, which is probably very similar in terms of mentality difference. But if we just look, okay, let's see why could they have to go into slavery. Think about a couple things. First of all, they go in as 70 people. God said, I'm going to make you a nation. And they come out as a million and a half. They would have stayed where they were as 70 people. They very well might have experienced fruitfulness, but the lands where they were were conquered and conquered and conquered by a ton of different people. And this was definitely not an army by any stretch of the imagination. 
But as you read into Joshua, you see God built an incredible army, a very powerful army, a hardened and tough army that maybe can only get hardened and toughened up by a little bit of slavery, as difficult as that is. Made those men strong, made them resilient. And maybe, as Brad talked about, he allows this affliction to come to remind them and to show them and to have them, which they later do in the later chapters, cry out for a Savior. I mean, really, what makes us cry out for a Savior but the fact that we recognize we are in a situation we can't get ourselves out of? When you're not in those situations, you ain't crying for help very often because everything's great. So a lot of the suffering I believe in my life is to remind me how weak I am and how in need of Jesus I am. It's like, by the way, need a Savior. Take the cape off. It's not yours. So the Exodus is then a story of God's people being saved by God and God's enemies being crushed by God. And the question is, whose team are you on? Because we think if we're on God's team that everything's going to be hunky-dory. Well, hunky-dory in this story is still some pain. But it ain't near the pain of God's enemies. In fact, there's a huge difference between the two kinds of pain, if you will. But a new king arises with Joseph. He's been running this land. He was called Lord Everyone bowed to him, and except obviously the one Pharaoh, but everyone else, Pharaoh says, whatever you say, that will happen. And he brings his brothers in, and everything is wonderful and prosperous, and then Joseph dies. And generations come, and generations go, and suddenly a new king, the Bible says, arises. And we'll start in verse 8. It says this, And now therefore, I'm sorry, there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. Then he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and escape from the land. So a new king comes to power in Egypt. And this is probably about fifteen to 1,700 years before Jesus shows up. Okay? So a new king arises who doesn't know Joseph. So he's either simply ignoring what is true and is obvious by all the paintings on the wall, or he was sleeping in Egyptian history class when they read the chapter on how Egypt was saved from seven years of famine by a guy named Joseph. Possible. Could be ignoring it. Maybe he doesn't know. Not sure. It's possible the guy wasn't even Egyptian. There was a, scholars kind of disagree exactly on who this Pharaoh is because there isn't really given any name to him. And so, kind of have to go in and like, okay, there was a city here and it was that city's name change and they're trying to just find little clues, but Moses didn't tell us. And he told us other names very clearly of people, but he didn't tell us this Pharaoh's name. So what we do know is there's a couple possibilities. One, it could be a guy named Ramses, and that's what like the movie The Prince of Egypt used, Okay. The reason they use Ramses is because later you find they build cities, one called Ramses, and scholars disagree if it was always called Ramses or if it was renamed, and so it could be him. It could be another guy, which scholars kind of like, a guy named Ah Moses, 
which would somehow make sense of why he was named. The name was maybe more Egyptian and, and those types of things. But this was the guy who drove out a people called the Hyksos who had come down from Assyria and took over Egypt. So they go, well, that guy was the conquering guy and he had cleaned them out, so maybe it's him or maybe his successors. But if we say, okay, the guys didn't know Joseph, they had no appreciation for who he was, they didn't know his achievements, it's possible that the, the new king they're talking about came right after the Hiskos had been kind of cleaned out and you got a new king who didn't remember that stuff and now everyone's a threat because they've got enemies that have come in and they have this huge level of nationalism and they're, you know, we're all about Egyptian, Egyptian. The, possi- uh, the final possibility to talk about is that it's during this invasion, this oppression. The guy's not Egyptian at all. So you wouldn't know Joseph, which would make sense. It also makes sense a little bit why really a lot of Egyptian, well, no Egyptian history records this Israelite stuff going on. Now, a lot of nations and kingdoms would kind of rewrite history a little bit because I don't know how many you know, stories want to include the wiping out of an entire military by the uh, waters of the Red Sea. doesn't look real good for that pharaoh or that nation. So it's not uncommon for that to be rewritten or just kind of ignored because everyone wants their history to look good. If you ever looked at a history textbook, Americans look really good in just about every single story you've ever read. Okay? We'll go read a history book in Russia. It'll probably look a little bit different. Okay? It's all about our perspective. But if it's this Hiskos invader guy, he, uh, he knows nothing about him. He's from a different people, down from Assyria. And so... Since Joseph had been the savior of Egypt, who cares? I'm not Egypt. But whoever the king was, he felt threatened by this huge number of people who were living in the land of Goshen. If you look at the map of Egypt, you see the Nile come up and it kind of branches out. And where all those branches are is where the land of Goshen is. And it was a land where the shepherds would exist or they stayed Joseph said, I'm going to put my people there because they're shepherds. There's great lands, there's great water there, and the Egyptians really don't like shepherds. So we'll stay kind of out of the main city areas up north, and the land was beautiful and very fertile and wonderful. And so they start growing incredibly in this land. And so that land is right in between, if you look, I guess like this, right in between Assyria, all the conquering guys that have come down, and Egypt, the main central part. So they look out and they see these people in between who were their enemies going, uh, we got a problem. Because if they've just been invaded, they could be invaded again. And so they're going, well, if someone chooses to invade us again, all these half a million or a million and a half people here, really 600,000 men, I don't think women and kids are going to do much, but this, this people here might join them and defeat us. That's a problem. If it's the Hiskos guys, still the same problem. They just invaded. They don't want to be invaded. It's a big problem. They could lose their government. They also say they might join our enemies and fight us, and they might escape. Well, there goes our workforce that we could use. So it's an economic threat. It's a military threat. It's all kinds of threats. And so in verse 11, here's what he decides to do to stop this threat, wherever this pharaoh is. 
Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, put them in Ramses. And that's where the Ramses idea comes from. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So the harder it got, the more babies they had. Which, you know, when things are tough, it's a good time to have babies. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so they ruthlessly, I'm sorry, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Okay? They were in dread of them. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the first means of dealing with the threat of all these people is to put them under taskmasters and put them in slavery and make them work. And the storehouses they built are, we kind of imagine like big grain silos or something, but it was partially to store grain and food, but really they were more like strategic military hubs where you could store food, but you could also have defense. So they're actually building the defense to keep themselves more enslaved, if you will. So the king is probably far less concerned with building, building these um, you know, defense things because of the threat he feels, and more so with oppressing the people to the point of killing them. I mean, his goal is really to work them so hard that they get hurt, broken, die, but they go down in population. It's his first means of population control. And so he sets taskmasters over them. It's just like you imagine. They probably didn't have whips like you see. They probably had big old sticks. That's just according to the kind of hieroglyphic stuff. They didn't use the whips for their slavery necessarily. But caning isn't really much better of an alternative. And they would punish them. And it was not unusual, especially in Egypt and other nations, to have their citizens work as about a month out of the year to pay their taxes. So as part of you know, the building plans, we want to build stuff, since you're in our nation, we're going to take you a month out of your job, and you're going to go work and build part of the city, and that will be your taxes for the year. But most of the buildings that were, they think were built around this time were built by captives either from war or people who had put into slavery like the uh, Hebrews. And so much so that a lot of the buildings, if you go to Egypt, they have inscriptions on some of the buildings to the effect of, they say, no free citizen was engaged in this service and building this. And they were proud of that. So they built these huge cities and, and made Egypt in many ways what it was today, which is a beautiful picture of how God uses his own people to bless the world. I mean, everyone loves Egypt. It's a beautiful place. And a lot of that was taken out of the work of God's people and who were in slavery but still blessing the city around them, not necessarily by choice but by natural consequence. But the slavery they made their lives... Bitter, which that word is often used to talk about just penetrating stench. Okay, it, Their lives stunk. Their lives were hard. Their lives were work all the time, very laborious. And their lives were servitude. In Deuteronomy 4.20, Moses describes it as this. He says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So it was an iron, it was just, you know, 
Imagine being in an iron furnace. It would hurt. So they're in this painful situation, and God is allowing them to be in there and to exist in there and stay in there under control. And as they're doing it, they're having still multiplication, getting bigger and bigger. So verse 13. I'm sorry, 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them named was Shifra and the other Puah. When you serve as a mid, when you serve as he's speaking as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, you shall she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not, as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So he's like, all right, let's take this up a notch. The slavery isn't stopping them. It might be controlling them, but it's not killing them off. And they're still having more babies. Let's start killing the babies. And so he goes to the Hebrew midwives. And, it's, you know, there was probably several hundred children born every year. So the possibility of these two midwives doing all of this was not really realistic. So it's, imagine they were probably kind of like, you know, head midwives or something. And the fact that he comes to these midwives, that the Pharaoh, who is worshipped as God, actually and comes to these Two slaves, really, it's kind of unusual, but he does, whether through messenger or in person, seems like it's in person, comes to him and says, I want you to kill the babies. And so what would happen, and scholars disagree, but that women would be kind of in a crouching position as they were having their babies, leaning on a rock or a stool, and the midwife would be behind them, and then when the baby was delivered, you would tell pretty quickly whether it was a boy or a girl, and if it was a boy, then they would suffocate the child. And the Hebrew wife would never, or Hebrew mom would never know. Obviously, after a few, you'd probably imagine they would see the pattern. But without question, the child would be killed. And so, since all the males were allowed, at least from the point he commanded before that, the babies that were there were going to grow up. He had a long-term plan for these people. It wasn't going to be immediate. You're going to have boys rising up from infancy. They're already infants and becoming, you know, part of this nation. So he had a long-term plan, a long-term vision for killing these people off. So he killed, or they told these women to kill the children. And I think it is amazing to see that in these two women, our God is so big that he often, just like Jesus, takes the things that are foolish and silly, and unbelievable, and small, and maybe mundane to accomplish the things that are great. Uh, and he takes these two women, and he names these two women. He doesn't give us the name of the Pharaoh, but these two women are remembered forever. Forever, because what they did. And verse 18 says this, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. We don't even know the name of this king who built this huge nation with this huge military who enslaved this million and a half people. But we know the names of these two women who obeyed God. 
And sometimes, you know, we're so concerned, I think, and this is I'm just as guilty, with making a name for ourselves, almost it's like it's a virtue. Ironically, Jesus, he didn't spend any time making a name for himself. He made a name for himself, but he didn't go around, Hey guys, I'm the Messiah. He told one woman when she asked him and told no others. In fact, he kept telling people, don't, don't, don't tell them what happened. But we're so concerned with making a name for ourselves. And reading passages like this also just remind me of the significance of maybe the insignificant stuff in God's community. And that our job is to obey. Not to ask how, not to ask why, not to go, but it's really hard. Not to go, well, it's not going to work out. You know, that's, we're talking about the Pharaoh here. You know. Our job is not to ask those questions. It's just to obey. God will take care of the rest. But we've got a million excuses as to why that's not going to make a name for me and why that's not going to be easy for me and why I shouldn't be doing this when the only question is, well, and you're not obeying because you've just rationalized your way out of good reasons to obey. How about God said? That seems to be enough. So these women fear God. And they don't fear Him necessarily out of like, oh, He's going to kill me. They have a fear and a reverence for God. And they're dealt well with in a situation where most midwives didn't have children. That's why they were midwives. And he dealt well with them, and it says he gave them families. They keep going. And some some might argue that you know they shouldn't have lied. They should have, uh, you know, I was deceptive. That's wrong. It's kind of like you know, well. If I was in Nazi Germany, I would have hit the Jews because, you know, or I'd tell them that they were there. That's lying. Come on. Get over it. Okay? I will say that I don't think necessarily they lied, but I think they did. They were very creative. And they would say, you know what, honey? When you feel that baby coming, you call me at the last minute. You wait as long as you can. And I bet they walked real slow till they got there. Oh, the baby's born. And I didn't really help that much. Whatever they did, they decided to obey God versus men. And Acts 5.29, I believe it is, when Peter and John are standing before um, basically the Pharisees, and they're saying, stop preaching. Stop talking about Jesus. And they said, you know what, you decide whether it's right for us to obey God or obey men. Our responsibility is to obey God regardless of what men say. And a lot of people go into this passage and use it for abortion and things like that. And um, we don't need to go there. All I know is that when it comes to my responsibilities, when it comes to what I have the opportunity to obey and opportunity not to obey, I'm to obey. And I love that, you know, James is up here and God help me. God help me. Under God, I'll obey. That's not enough for this guy. This guy's an evil man. Verse 22. And the Pharaoh commanded all his people. So it's not enough. They stand up to this Pharaoh, these brave women, and say, well, here's our excuse. Uh, They go too fast for us, and we don't get there in time. Sorry, we're trying. He's like, all right. He takes it to this final level, which is, I think we repass this verse sometimes. 
Check this out. It's scary. It says, And Pharaoh commanded all his people, commanded all his people, all his people, commanded, not suggested, not encouraged, not whispered. He did the whispering with the midwives. Commanded all. Here's a command. What are you supposed to do? Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. So he goes from slavery to kind of uh, secretive, you know, infanticide to total national policy, genocide, kill them all. I mean, that's men and women and who knows how many teenagers. Just all people. Throw them into the Nile. So as I looked at this passage, I like, what do you get from this? Good Lord. Other than, this guy's just brutal. I got a lot that was really convicting. See, we all have our own Egypts of sorts. We all have uh, gone into Egypt. And we all have, I think, some personal place that we need salvation from. And it's, each of us is a little bit different, probably. And I've, as I was looking at this, I, sometimes the road to slavery is uh, the road of prosperity. And when it's a land of prosperity, when all is well, I think we're less apt to ask God or consider whether we're actually supposed to be where God wants us to be. The thing about these people in, in Egypt is that um, they had a plan to get out of Egypt. They were told that this is not where they're supposed to be, and I can't help but think that they may have forgotten that. Why? Because everything was really good. Everything was prosperous. Everything was wonderful. They had this beautiful land. They had all the food they could eat. They had all the lands they could have for their, for their sheep. They had families exploding. Everything was wonderful, but they weren't supposed to be there. That was not their end destination. Jacob, right before he died, he told Joseph in Genesis 48, Verse 21, he says, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and He'll bring you again to the land of your fathers. That was in Canaan. And Joseph, when he was about to die, he told his brothers in Genesis 50, the last chapter of Genesis, he says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land He swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I wonder if they've forgotten where they were supposed to be. I can't help but wonder if the elders and the leaders and the men of the community reminded them, this is not our place, guys. I know it's wonderful here. Everything is fantastic, but this is not where we're supposed to be. And if, honestly, like when we went to plant the church, all the guys and the ladies who were in leadership, everything was prosperous and wonderful for me. Okay? It was excellent. I was a teacher. I had my summers off. I was guaranteed a raise every year. The kids loved me. I was getting awards. It was awesome. I could make up classes. I made up classes like, I'm going to do a film class. Why? Because I like film. Okay. I mean, that's what it was like. I could teach anything I want. I could lock the door and go, let's talk about monsters. I put on Lord of the Rings. Gollum will go up, and I'm having a huge conversation about sin. Let's talk about the monster in all of us. 
Okay? I'm preaching the gospel. It was excellent. And then God shows up. If God hadn't showed up, or if I'd ignored God, everything was prosperous and I would not have taken any steps of faith. And I almost fear prosperity more than I do suffering. Because suffering leads me to a place where I go, Ah, I need you, Jesus. And prosperity's like, Yeah, I'll get back to you soon, Jesus. And these guys are put in this land of prosperity that becomes their land of affliction. It becomes a place of slavery for them. And I don't even think they saw it coming. And maybe they should have. Or, in the midst of it, because as soon as Moses shows up and he tells him, hey, God showed up. Remember, God showed up. God's here. Let's go. Um, They're not real, okay, we've been waiting. They're more like, are you kidding me? It's been 400 years. It's been 400 years. What God are you talking about? The, uh, the elders and leaders and teachers might have made it a heck of a lot easier if they would have reminded people, just as you're to remind the people in this community, remind your children that this is not our final destination. That there's more outside of this life. This life is a speed bump to eternity. And the moment we forget that, we do one of two things. We get really excited about our prosperity here. Okay? Actually, that's about it. So they fail to lead and they went into bondage. And the thing about sin is that bondage, like, if we knew we were going to get into slavery to something, I don't think we would ever do it. You know? It's not like we stop and go, well, I might get enslaved to that, so I probably won't. And that's the darkness of sin. Because sin takes stuff that's really good and enslaves you to it. In fact, most sin, I think, starts off as a good thing. See, we have kind of these categories of sin. We have a really misconception about sin. Sin takes those things that God created and said, this is good, and deforms them. And anything that you think is good can be infected by sin. Take alcohol. That's an easy one. And people go, well, alcohol is evil. No, alcohol is not evil. It was good. They used to use it for tithes. It was great. Sin is what screws it up because we abuse it in us. Anything we talked about in the redemption series. Okay? We look at the things that are good. Even pornography is an evil, terrible thing. But what it is, it's a perversion of what sin has done to sex, which is a good thing. But when sin grabs a hold of something good, it per- just perverts it. And, dist- and it can be anything. And once you've made your list of things I'm going to protect myself from, you've totally set yourself up to fall because you think you're prosperous. And that thing that is okay may begin to enslave you. We always need to understand that the problems in our lives are not external. And the solutions are not external. It's the sin in us that can make a mess of anything. Even the good works we do. That's the sad thing. We get all excited because we're doing good works and suddenly we're prideful and we're self-righteous. Sin. And so, we can't lose sight of the bondage that we can put ourselves to. And I think sometimes... That Satan gives you exactly what you want. And it will feel great. 
But he'll give it exactly what you want if it will lead you away from Jesus. And then when you're prosperous, you won't ask if it's, am I supposed to be here? Because it feels so good. And the question I think we all have to ask is, are we where God wants us to be? And I think our immediate response is, you know, well, God's times are good. You know, things are wonderful. I'm rich. I'm exactly where God wants me to be. Are you sure? The opposite, you know, when things are suffering, evil, God definitely doesn't want me suffering. Are you sure? Maybe we need to start asking God what he, where He wants us to be, whether it be prosperity or be affliction, and focus on that answer versus the actual horizontal circumstances of our life. Our greatest and final enemy, I believe, is sin. And I think the progression of Egyptians, uh, I'm sorry, of the Hebrews' experience is exactly what happens to us. Because what happens, and it's happened to everyone probably at some level, is that sin always starts feeling like prosperity, and then eventually it begins to control you. It begins to control you, and control you, as I mean, it becomes your idol. Well, what's an idol? Well, an idol is something you worship. An idol is something you get meaning from. An idol is something that if it's taken away, you freak out. Okay? Since Jesus can't ever be taken away, since Jesus gives us meaning and purpose, and since Jesus is our only hope and Savior, he's supposed to be worshipped. Well, we would like to replace him with new functional saviors. And if you want to figure out what yours, yours is, just go, well, what is my personal hell? Well, if I lost my job, that would ruin my life. There you go. That's your, probably your idol for the day. But we get controlled by it. And how do we control by it? We worship it. We give it our time. We give it our money. We give it our energy. It controls us and in many ways enslaves us. We make sacrifices to please that thing. To make sure we hold on to that thing. Sometimes if you're a, if you're a dad, we talked about this at the, at the retreat, at the event, whatever you want to call it. The idea of provider we go, well, men should provide. Well, when, when does that become sin? When does that become where I'm just provider, I'm provider, I'm provider, and your family's over here suffering because they need you emotionally and spiritually, but you're providing them stuff, which is supposed to be a good thing, right? Well, look how it takes, you suddenly you're controlled. And you suddenly have this job, i got to work harder so they can have this, and you're controlled, and you're doing all things, and you're denying the very people you're supposed to be loving and providing for so that you can provide. How sick is that? But very common. And so once sin begins to control you, and you go into slavery to it, we get into the next level, which happens in this story. You start to harm those that you love. I say the people that you love are harmed by your slavery. And I think what's beautiful maybe about this story, and also convicting especially for us guys... Is that, and I'll speak to the men a little bit more, because I think that if Satan can get the men, he can destroy the family. I really believe that. And quite honestly, some of the men in here and elsewhere are able to avoid some of the harm to those they love because you have some godly women standing up and making some godly decisions. You have some marriages, you have some families, you have jobs, you have all kinds of places that are being sustained and protected, just like these two midwives did, 
in the midst of a terrible situation where the men should be leading, but the women do. I am a huge fan of strong women who lead. And I think it's a travesty when the men don't. I'm always wondering, like, where are the men in this situation? I mean, if you see your kids, and this is like, you know, they could have went and told the elders, and the, you know what they told us? This is a million and a half people. Start killing our kids? It's time to stand up and do something. Because you got these two women who are making sure everything's protected. And God bless our women for doing that. Because I know that there are many times when I feel the lead, and I praise God that my wife is there. On the simple stuff, like we go to a wedding, and I'm like, by the way, do we got a gift? You know? She's like, oh. Okay. So that I look, okay. You know? Don't look like a dork. Or like, did we give them a card? Yeah, I signed it for you. You know, those kind of things. Thank you. Little stuff, but then there's major stuff. Now, I, I'm going to say this to my shame. And so this is terrible that I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say this. My, my, Kaylin is going to say this. When I was dating Kaylin, she probably remembers the story. And it's shameful. This is a shameful, shameful, shameful story. We're in an apartment complex. She lived in an apartment for a year before we got married with another friend. And me and another guy who remained nameless were... Um, <laughs> well, to say that... Um, um, yeah... I married Kaylin and he married her, the other girl. So we'll just put it there. And we're good friends. Um, and we're in this apartment complex and we hear a guy abusing his girlfriend upstairs verbally. Now, it's men. You guys hear that? What do guys do? You hear that? You hear what? Do you hear that yelling? Look at my friend. We'll call him Bobby. Hey, Bobby, you hear that? No, I hear anything. Starts more, louder, louder. You guys should go up there. Go up there? And do what? You know? Say something. Oh, I think they're quieting down. I don't, I don't, I don't hear it anymore. Okay? No, I hear it. I don't think you do. I got the refrigerator or something. No, you don't hear that. And you know what happened? My future bride and her friend went up there and said something. And they stopped. Then my friend and I looked at each other and went, yeah, I'm a jackass and so are you. And I praise God for strong women who help these men and these families. You know, they stand in the gap where the men should be is the hard part. That's the shameful part, and there's a glorious part as well. But praise God for Jesus' sufficiency, who is much better king than I am. And eventually, once sin has controlled you, and once it starts to harm the people that you love, it eventually destroys you. I, uh, Proverbs 27.20 says this, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. Hell is never satisfied. And never satisfied in the eyes of a man. Always more. Sin always takes more. It continues to take more. Starts off as what we think is good, and it just goes more and consumes and consumes. So here's where I think we're at. And this is what 
Uh, I guess where am I? I'm at. As we get out of bondage and you see these people being saved out of Egypt, we need two things. We need a Savior and we need a Lord. And if you only have one, you're in trouble. See, the Israelites get put into a situation where they have no chance to save themselves. They have no chance to save themselves. And slavery to sin can be escaped from, but it can't come from you being really skilled or cunning or really even strong. And that's the hardest thing for guys, because we're like, I can handle this. I'll just get rid of everything I have and live in a box, and I'll never lust after anybody. You'll lust after the box, I probably, okay? But the fact is, you living in a rubber room without windows or anything else to look at is not going to take away the sin that's in your heart. That's what the problem is. Like, I won't look anything. I'll stare at the ground. Okay? Well, just the Rolodex in your mind will start up, and you'll have your own little peep show going on there. You know it, and I do. We can't get away from it by how smart we are, how hard we work, how much luck we have. We do it by changing our masters from sin to God. And changing masters begins with recognizing that you're in Egypt and despite the prosperity that might exist there, you're in bondage. You're in bondage. Not like, well, no, I'm just kind of tied up. I'm just a little hurt. Well, you're in bondage. You're afflicted. You have a taskmaster that if you don't feed this master, you are going to be beaten until you do. You need a Savior. And I think sometimes in the affliction of my life, it's just the purpose of it is to simply remind me, like, you can't save yourself. Sin cannot be managed. Okay? You can't manage sin. God did not show up. This is what is so cool about Exodus. God does not show up with Pharaoh and say, all right. Let's have some negotiations here. I'm going to pay you this much and you'll let them out. No. He comes and says, let the people go. No. Boom! Let the people go. No. Boom! He doesn't mess around. He doesn't mess around. God does not mess around with that sin. You can't save yourself. Sin has to be destroyed and crushed in order for us to be free. Sin has to be destroyed and crushed and I'll give just a little clue. You can't crush it yourself. In fact, I don't know how much we participate in it. Seems like God comes in and, you know, Moses is basically like, yeah, God's going to send frogs. He didn't say, hey, Moses, go out and get a couple buckets and get some frogs, okay, and start tossing them all over the land. He just says, go tell Pharaoh, frogs are coming. Frogs are coming. And they come. 
Locusts are coming, and they come. Your firstborns are going to get killed, and they're killed. God is the one that saves. God is the one that crushes. Don't try to manage your sin. But I think, even for men or women, it is easier to accept that you need a Savior than it is to accept that you need a Lord after that. Because if you just accept salvation, I'm free! Woo! Let's go! Who are you living for? Because you are going to experience some prosperity, and that prosperity is going to lead you to another master who is going to enslave you again. Unless you take Jesus as king of your life after he saves you. And having a king in your life is more than just like, yeah, that's the guy that saved me. The word Lord in the New Testament is kurios. And it means he to whom a person or thing belongs. About which he has power of deciding. He is the master, often called the owner of slaves. When we are freed by the blood of Jesus Christ, is what we celebrate here every Sunday. When we are freed from slavery, we are freed to slavery. But see, in Brent, this is a guy that taught it, the men's thing this weekend. He made a great point, and I kind of made the point, but because those guys are there, I want to show Brent maybe made the point too, so whatever. Is that being a servant to something can be the most awesome, wonderful, prestigious, make a name for yourself thing dependent upon who your master is. Remember when a couple weeks ago we talked about being ambassadors to the king. When you were a servant and a slave to Egypt, where you are in bondage, where you're controlled, where you're telling, being told to kill and destroy things, that is completely other than being a slave, as Peter describes himself, a servant in 2 Peter 1.1 to Jesus. Because a servant in Jesus' house got some power. A servant in Jesus' house has direction. And as you are saved and you experience freedom from this bondage that you're in, you have to go in a direction. And that is that now I'm a citizen of a new kingdom. I don't come out of a kingdom into Sam's kingdom. I come out of a kingdom into God's kingdom, of which I'm a citizen of, and there is a king with kingdom values. And the problem is, especially me as a man, has a real problem with letting a king be dominant and controlling and directing in all that I have. Because I only want to give him little bits of it. When we talk about Jesus being our king, it's everything. You are king of my life. You are king of my bride. You are king of my marriage. You are king of my children and my parenting. You are king of my money and my resources. You are king in my job. So that all those things, when your boss tells you to do something that isn't in line with the king, it's an easy decision. Because you are a citizen of a new kingdom. You have a lord above that lord. You have a Lord above your intellect, a Lord above your emotions, a Lord above everything that you have. But how many of us 
live and breathe in that place where we say, Jesus, yes, you saved me, and now uh, what do I do? Jesus, you're my Lord. We're supposed to shift into this. And we have to, I pray the Holy Spirit will examine all of our hearts and go, what is not under your Lordship? And go, gosh, what does that mean? What is He not the Master of? Because it's easy to be saved, but it's not easy to be mastered. And if you are a Christian, then Jesus is your King. He's your King, and you are His servant. Whether you're in a job, whether you're in any community, He's your King first and foremost. And He's not even close to the taskmaster that the Egyptians were. Do you want to know what kind of king we have? What kind of master we have? Take a look at John 13. John 13, you have the infinite God. The infinite God in the form of a man coming down with his disciples. And as his disciples are sitting at dinner arguing about whether or not they're first in line in the kingdom, Jesus takes a basin of water And he kneels down before men who should prostrate themselves before him and worship him. And he washes their feet. That's the king that we have. Not some Egyptian taskmaster who beats us into belief. We have a Lord. Because we'll have a lot of problem with it, especially as guys. I don't want to be mastered. Look at the master we're talking about. It's a master that says, just admit you're broken. And I will clean you. And I'll love you. And it's beautiful. But we have to get to the first place where we say, um, maybe like where I'm at in this prosperity is not exactly where I should be. Or maybe you're the person that's in bondage right now and you need freedom. But once you get that freedom, there's another step. We all need a Savior and we all need a Lord. And as we close here, we do every single week. We have to remind ourselves. This is not just like, hey, we do this because that's what churches do. It's a routine. We do this to remind ourselves that you are not the master of your life. If you are a Christian, you have a Savior. And if you are a Christian, you have a master. And if you don't want to say you don't have a master, you're not a Christian. It's very cut and dry. And this up here says, I am. Believe in you saving me through your body, through your blood on that cross, that I might serve you in the time you've given me on this world. That's what we declare every Sunday. So if you cannot bow before Jesus as Master, don't come up here. Don't. We don't. No one cares. No one, there's not like a checklist back in the back. We're like, nope. Tina didn't go up today. Deal with that. Okay? But let me warn you, like we started, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes his enemies. The Bible says that every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. How many is that? Every knee. The knees of his enemies and the knees of those he loves. So your knee is going to bow one way or another. I pray that it's you 
saying to him in worship, I worship you, Lord, because the other knee ends in death and destruction. Let's pray. Father God, we give you honor and glory and magnify your greatness. Lord, all of us are in situations that we cannot save ourselves from. And for many of us, and perhaps all of us, Lord, you have led us there. Some of us are experiencing prosperity, Lord, and we're still not in the place that we should be. And some of us are experiencing bondage, and that's not the place you want us to be. So we pray that you will save us. We cry out to you, Lord, confessing that we cannot save ourselves. That you want to bring us out of our Egypts, Lord, and to be in a place of worship and a place of joy. I pray, Lord, that you will be not only my Savior, but my Lord, as I live and breathe in this place. Save us and lead us, Lord. And even though I don't know exactly where it's being led to, Father, I will follow through the pain, through the joy, through the tears and through the laughs, Lord. I will follow. I pray that everyone here, and especially for the men, will stand up and embrace you as their Lord and their Master. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood and sacrifice. Amen. Please stand and respond with us. Blessed are 